In Sue Miller's latest novel, Monogamy, Annie is a happy wife. Her husband, Graham, is a man with a magnetic personality and big appetites. One day he seems preoccupied and distant, but her anxiety dissolves when he presents her with flowers. They eat a decadent meal and have plenty of wine. All is well again. The next morning, Graham doesn't wake up. Annie tries to survive the next few days in a vast ocean of grief and mourning. And then after Graham's memorial service, she learns the explosive reason for his earlier distracted behavior. Annie hears about it from the other woman. This is Book Public, a Texas public radio podcast about books. I'm Yvette Benavides. The discovery that Graham was unfaithful to Annie in the days leading up to his death is a devastating blow to her. As she discovers this news from his weeping paramour herself, she feels her profound sorrow bubble up through her body as anger, a kind of rage she has never experienced. And she must suppress the anger too, hide it from his children and those who loved him best. For Annie to do anything else would be another betrayal. Sue Miller is the best-selling novelist and author of Monogamy. She spoke to us from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Yeah, it's a novel. It's sort of like all my novels in a certain sense. Um, It's really character-based. So you get to know two people, essentially, who are in a long-term marriage. Uh, There's Graham, who's um, sort of a very large man with large appetites and very friendly, sort of a needy guy, as he thinks of himself. He likes to be amongst people. He loves to be charming and have people be charmed by him but people do they are charmed by him and they like him he's married to annie who's much more reserved um graham owns a bookstore annie's a photographer uh although she's not had a show in a long time and she's got one coming up she's very anxious about so that's where the book essentially begins with those two people uh and you sort of learn a lot about them in the first chapters of the book the state of their marriage uh the way they've related to each other over the years Um, and the fact that things are sort of a little off between them right now, and Annie's not sure why. Graham knows very well because he's having an affair, which he almost instantly regretted as soon as he started it um, and uh, is sort of tormented by um, and knows he needs to end it and feels false in his relations to Annie at this moment. So that's their situation. Um, And then it doesn't give too much away to say that fairly early on in the book, Graham dies so that Annie wakes up with him in the bed next to her, lifeless. Um, And after he's sort of been taken away by the EMTs, she begins to sort of to call people, to call the people who will need to know this. And that's how you are introduced to the other members of the family and the people who will be most affected by it. Um, So she calls first her daughter, her daughter with Graham, whose name is Sarah who lives in California. She's in her late 20s. Then she calls Graham's first wife, Frida, who's been very much a part of their marriage per Graham's wishes. Graham has sort of, in his all-embracing way, uh, wanted to bring Frida into this circle that he's made with Annie. Uh, And Frida proceeds to call the son she had with Graham, whose name is Lucas, who works in publishing in New York. So that is the family group, essentially, those people. And what the book does is just trace the impact of Graham's death and the sort of um, 
all the ripples that that sort of spread out around it uh, amongst all these characters and then some, some other ones too. The book is crowded, has a lot of people in it, uh, but the most important people are Annie and Graham. Well, it is very much about Annie's grief and how she tries to pick up the pieces after Graham dies and then, of course, this... Um, this big secret about this affair. I was thinking about how Graham is this big, loud character, and he's also very magnetic kind of a guy. People yes. are really drawn to him, but part yes. of part of his complexity—not to you know analyze him too much—but part of his complexity is that he's really rather insecure. I mean, he almost can't even believe <laughs> that somebody would. Somebody like Annie would want to be like him. And and there's this word in the book, his Grahamness, that is um, <laughs> this Graham disguise that <laughs> that he wears, as it's expressed in the novel, uh, sort of after he meets Annie. And when he was with the first wife, Frida, he was a very different Graham without that Grahamness. <laughs> so I found yeah, him... Changed in the at that point in, uh, and really changed. Actually, just before actually, he and Frida split up. He had begun to change. It was the '60s, and suddenly people began physically to look very different. And Graham, who had been sort of, I guess I've characterized him as a little bit dorky looking at a certain point in his life, he grows his hair out and sheds his glasses and becomes better looking and sort of compelling looking, and begins to attract women. And then he sort of enjoys that very much and moves in into that, moves into being somewhat sexy, although he's not a likely character for that, but he is, he becomes that. Um, and uh, sort of embraces all the sexual freedoms of the 60s too, so that he becomes more secure about that issue anyway. Um, but he characterizes himself in the book at one point as just a big, needy baby. Uh, and there is some sense of that, that he, he really is compelled to draw people to himself. But he can. That's also what's interesting about him is that he, he is compel, compelling, uh, even though he's sort of driven to be compelling. I think. Tell me how you came to decide about these interactions between Frida and Annie, the two Mrs. McFarlands. They're, <laughs> <laughs> they're so different. Yeah, one from one from another, very much so. And, um, you know, they somehow find a way to become friends. And uh, in the book, I talk about uh, the fact that they, they go through a period where um, the, the mother of each of them is so slowly succumbing to Alzheimer's disease. So they have that to share. And then it turns out also that um, each child, uh, Graham and, and, and Annie's child, Sarah, and um, Frida and Graham's son, Lucas, each of them makes a sort of that is to say, Lucas is very drawn to Annie, who is not his mother, and and is sort of uh, in a bad state in his adolescence and then subsequently with his mother. And Sarah, who's hard for Annie to understand, um, is very drawn to Frida and finds a kind of mothering figure in Frida. And each of the mothers is very glad for that, that the, each child has a resource. And so that, too, is part of the really complex um, arrangement of love and trust um, among all these people. Um, something I, you know, was just interested in tracing how, how complicated and how, um, how rich in intersections uh, that kind of family can become and, and has become over the years. 
Well, speaking of the children, when they're young and then when they're adults, they are very complicated uh, in terms of their relationships. I was really drawn to this part of the story because it's so realistic, the ways in which these parents are trying to manage well, some unresolvable issues for their children, things they can't change and they sort of have to accept. That's just so realistic to me. I I enjoyed actually that part of the novel, uh, even though it brought so many problems to these parents and to the children. But it was just so realistic, this notion of, oh, you know, not just unconditional love, but these things that stay in our relationships that aren't necessarily positive, but that we sort of adapt to in a way. Yeah. And I think, you know, they misunderstand each other, all of them in one way or another. I mean, I really wanted to sort of trace through that, that they're all trying very hard with each other. And particularly after Graham dies, everyone uh, tries very hard to be loving and so forth. But there's just, there are elements in all of them, in each of them, in these intersecting lines, that 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 are just incomprehensible from one character to another, and that's it seems to me just sort of the way people live in families a lot of times, and particularly in such complicated families. Um, you know, I had this idea when I was writing the book. We used to have to do in a class I was taking in college sociograms, which is a big circle that you draw. And you place the characters you're looking at, the people you're looking at, around the edge of this circle. And one character behaves in a certain way or has something happen to him. And that affects, let's say, two characters opposite him in the circle. So you draw a line from that person to those two characters. Then those characters react, and that affects someone else. So that you, in the end, you have this, all these crisscrossing lines, a kind of spider web of action and reaction. And that's, I think, partly what happens in this novel and it, it exposes the ways in which they've sort of gotten used to thinking about each other and are unable to stop thinking about each other, sort of roles that they've occupied and ways that they've become known to each other, which get in the way of their really understanding each other. Um, but it was my, I was so interested in all of them and in sort of, I move around and really sit inside each different character, um, even to this little two-year-old girl who was born, born to Lucas and uh, and his wife, uh, Jean, who's French. But I, that was my pleasure in writing the book, was to watch the way they failed each other, all of them nearly, and then tried desperately not to fail each other, to, to make, make amends or to make things better or to, to work at understanding the other. And yet there were just these certain limitations they all had, just how, that's how it is, it seems to me, in life. You know, it's work, um, in particularly in a family like this, it is so complex. Well, speaking of the baby, so Lucas has a little bit of, of an issue at first, and that's also just a very natural thing that happens sometimes. Uh, you know, when a new baby comes into the picture, he just doesn't know what to make of her. But by the time she's in that um, section of the novel where it's Thanksgiving, you sure can write babies. The scene with baby, <laughs> <laughs> I was just so taken with that baby and the wooden spoon and the whole thing. We've all seen babies do these things. Yeah. It, it was yeah. just so, so lovely and so poignant in its way. Is that based on any babies <laughs> in your life? <laughs> well, I went to daycare for about 10 years of my life and with really little kids, one and a half to three or so. And I always found them so interesting and so charming, the sort of interest I was interested in their 
uh, provision of language in the way they understood and misunderstood things in the world. And I actually based a little bit of it on my granddaughter, who's now 12, so she's well beyond any of that. But I took such pleasure in um, in her in her quirkiness. In her, in that, there's a scene in the book where everyone is gathered around to say goodbye after the, this post-Thanksgiving meal. And they, they formed a rough circle as they're putting their coats on, saying goodbye and so forth. And she sees this circle, and it must remind her of uh, circle games they play in school. And so she says, you know, <laughs> everybody jump. And so they all put their hands together and jump for her, essentially. Um, and my granddaughter did that once sort of in a circle of people. She looked up at us, and I could see she was trying to make sense of why we were all in this circle around her. And then, of course, it's perfectly natural. We're here to jump. So we did indeed jump. Um, so it was sort of taking things from a lot of different little children, including my own son. But um, uh, but I really loved her. Um, I just loved making her. <laughs> oh, I, I enjoyed her as well. I kept thinking about, look at all of these these adults with all of these things roiling all around and this baby sort of in the middle just doing her thing. It, it was just lovely. Mm-hmm. And the setting is uh, Cambridge. I appreciate very much Mm -hmm. the view into this space, but also the setting of the bookstore. I have to tell you, oh, this book made me miss being able to duck into a bookstore for no reason and Mm -hmm. stay there for hours. Yeah, that's the kind of bookstore he wanted and and he made, actually, Graham, uh, in in that place. So, yeah, I do, too. There are a few like that, and there is sort of one that's back at Cambridge, I'm glad to say. So, yeah. so this was Graham's space where he he really seemed to thrive there, and he was such a good host of, at the readings, and mm-hmm. um, so it just becomes almost, a, you know, a character in itself. There, there's yeah. also a lot of food in the in this book, really good food, <laughs> and a lot of wine. Um, a lot of wine, yeah. So I'm I, a little self-conscious about that, but anyway, yeah. <laughs> There was a lot of wine. Uh, there's a lot of sort of celebration to them. I mean, all the writers who come through the bookstore are invited to, uh, you know, to, uh, to come through to read, are invited to, or often invited to a party at Graham and, and Annie's house. And Annie is a really good cook, so she makes everyone welcome in that way, and the wine flows, and Graham has all these great old 45 <laughs> records that he has had to throw away. They just got so laden with dried up liquor and stuff like that, but um, there's dancing, or there has been dancing in their past, and um, so I thought of it as just this um, very welcoming way of living, um, not not involving a lot of money or anything like that, but just um, their care for other people uh, in their in their particular ways. You've been a prolific writer, penning. 11 novels, a memoir, short story collection. We've been waiting for this novel. <laughs> it's uh, well <laughs> well worth the wait. Um, oh, thank you. I want to ask you about what it feels like to have this novel in the world to quite a lot of anticipation, and I'm sure acclaim, I'm quite sure. And then, but what's it like to have all of this marvelous stuff happening around you and this novel but during the pandemic, oh, it's very strange. Um, uh, I'm, you know, I mean, it's all happening online, and so in a certain way, it's easier than the usual uh, book tour, where you're, you know, always getting on an airplane and going someplace else, and you know, not sleeping very well in hotels and so forth. So I've, I've surprised myself by enjoying this part of it. 
it's just been a lovely uh, sort of response, you know, by the publishers and certain sort of pre pre-publication reviews and discussions of the book. Um, and it's really feels for me, I'll be 77 this fall and it just feels like a, a new start. It's been six years since I had a book out and I just am, I'm very happy. I, uh, I, I'm not sure. I hope I'll write another book, but I'm not sure of it. Um, and I just, th- this book makes me very happy. I, 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 this book was hard to write, but I loved the characters so much. They kept me good, good company. And, um, so it was also a pleasure to write once I found my footing with it. Um. Sue Miller is the author of Monogamy. This has been Book Public, a Texas public radio podcast about books. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. Our digital producer is Bree Kirkham. I'm Yvette Benavides.